This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. I don't think Vladimir Putin really wants war. There's no motivation for him to follow what Russia did back in 1980. He's exposed the divisions within the European Union and exposed the complete failure of America under Biden. So he's already had a couple of wins out of this. The words there of Nigel Farage, international statesman, latter-day Nostradamus, just last week. How wrong he was, but then he is wrong about everything. As tanks roll into Ukraine, as the madman theory is replaced by the idea that Vladimir Putin isn't just pretending to be a madman, but actually is a madman, I'm joined on a special new European podcast by James Ball, the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. We will take in developments in Ukraine, our obligations to the refugees who will be displaced by this invasion, and whether the UK's response has been compromised by Russian money. And we'll go a little further into James's article in the latest issue of The New European, which talks about ways to change Westminster, so self-interest and the interest of bad actors from home and abroad do not run our democracy. First, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from The New European. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is Greeny MRCC, Greeny MRCC, Greeny MRCC. Excuse me, 
man overboard. Approximately 15 men overboard. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed that you found this episode. And if you want to support us to do more brilliant journalism like The 27, then please subscribe the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. I'm joined by James Ball, New European columnist, Pulitzer-winning journalist, global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. In issue 281 of the New European, James offers seven ideas to uh, repair Westminster, which we will come to in a moment. First, though, James, we, we must talk about Ukraine and, and our response. First of all, what should our attitude be to the refugees who are going to be displaced by this crisis and, and what, what will it actually be? Well, um, I, I think we're going to see refugee movements on a scale that we haven't seen in Europe, probably in living memory, to be honest. You know, Syria obviously displaced millions and millions of people, but this is a lot closer to Europe's borders. And, you know, I think we should be working with, with the EU already to sort of take a good share. You know, we are obviously right up off in the other corner of the continent, but that's no reason that we don't have the capacity and the financial resources to take in a good number of people. You know, these are these are sort of, you know, people who were living normal middle class lives two weeks ago. You know, this is this is sort of people very, very much like us who have been trying to keep the rights to self-determination and to democracy. And, you know, these are people, you know, part of why this conflict happened is Ukraine was looking towards the West and looking to be part of the West. And if we as Western Europe reject those people in their sort of hour of grimace need, you know, what what a sort of awful betrayal that would be. What would effective sanctions look like then? And then and, and how much of our response so far has been compromised by these donations made by Russians to the Conservative Party, which I've just seen James cleverly saying of all from patriotic Russians who fled Putin and feared Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, of, of course they were. You know, it's uh, it's not as if any of them came from, say, you know, the wives of former cabinet ministers in Russia. Yeah. I think we have to sort of do sanctions that are so, so swinging that we feel detriment from them. 
Mm. You know, if they're not hurting us, they won't be hurting Russia. If they are hurting us, they'll be hurting Russia far more. You know, we have to be honest as well. Effective sanctions will result in Russia cutting off gas supplies to Europe, and that will affect us as well as Europe. And we may have to face that. We may, you know, we need to respond on such an overwhelming scale that Putin recognises this was the step too far. We have underreacted and underreacted and underreacted to Putin, who, you know, let's be honest, this invasion of Ukraine isn't new. Russia has been invading Ukraine since 2014, and our tepid responses have let it get to this sort of previously unimaginable scale. So we should be looking at cultural embargoes as well as economic ones. We should have, you know, Russia should have no place in international sports. It should have no place in Eurovision. It's, you know, there should be no bands touring there. You've got to essentially sort of make, mark a moment, mark a Rubicon. Obviously, there's oligarchs that can be sanctioned. There's, you know, the ending of exports of luxury goods. There's sort of all sorts of things like that. But, and, you know, we really do need to try and exclude it from the financial system. And some of this, unfortunately, does punish the Russian people as well as the Russian elite, which isn't fair, but is also the only way to get any kind of change on this. Is our voice on Ukraine louder or or weaker through not being part of the EU anymore? I mean, we need to be fairly honest in that the EU response on this has not been very good either. No, and again, they're quibbling about luxury goods, aren't they, even as as we're talking now? Yes, it's it's somewhat woeful. And, you know, Germany has only very recently and very reluctantly paused the Nord Stream. And I think Germany is getting too much credit for that. It's paused certification of, of the gas pipeline. It hasn't actually, you know, it's not like it's ripped out the pipeline permanently or anything. So at the moment, they're really sort of dipping a toe in. And, you know, what, what you do wonder is whether we could potentially have been a louder voice in Europe for a better earlier response, which might have averted this. You know, Macron has always been quite keen to have a reset with Putin mm. and to focus on the Middle East and, see, you know, almost sees Russia as an ally against what, what it sees as radical Islamic nations, um, which has always been a bit of a problematic view and has meant that it's sort of suited everybody to, to let him continue. So... We probably could have had a better voice in it, but, you know, we're not really in a strong position on it either. We have some very, very tough rhetoric, but we haven't really backed them up with very much action. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's, it's, it, yeah, the, the response has been just so weak over time and... and um you know i mean who who knew that it would it w- would lead to this all the signs were were there weren't they hiding in in plain sight i mean i mean one thing we should say actually is this has been the one place this has been a good week for is us and uk intelligence yes who just last week were being accused by all sorts of usual suspects of scaremongering and escalating yeah. the tensions and you know distracting from x y or z it has uncut, un, sort of furled out exactly as they said it would. And by cleverly actually putting a lot of that intelligence in the public domain, they have made Russia's pretext games a lot more difficult. 
you know, they set out what Russia would do, how it would do it in public, you know, their, conf- their level of confidence in their assessments, and it has panned out exactly as they said it would. We're starting to learn a bit of the comms of it, but, you know, what, what is a shame is the world was given some very clear warnings and then dithered. And so, you know, any chance of averting this was lost. And at times like this, when we're seeing replays of old social media messages with Nigel Farage praising Putin's strength and Aaron Banks comparing the Ukraine to Russia, to the Isle of Wight, to Britain. I mean, people inevitably are adding two and two together and making any kind of number talk has turned back to the Russian involvement in the 2016 referendum, which you've talked about on this podcast before. Is it a complete red herring? Should we have dug further into this while we had the chance? I think Putin has been telling us who he is for a very long time. You know, he's a sort of violent, autocratic nationalist and a kleptocrat. You know, anyone who said anything positive about him at all in the last decade has told you who they are when they do that as well. You know, there is nothing romantic or anti-Western or noble about Putin either. He's not someone playing 4D chess. You know, his strange rambling speech this week sort of showed he's bought his own bullshit, essentially. He he has started to believe that Ukraine doesn't have a history independently of Russia. And so, you know, does this mean that we should try and unpick things and find a grand narrative? Probably not, actually. We know Putin isn't our friend. We know that he likes to cause disruption and cause division. The UK less of a priority than Eastern Europe for doing that. You know, what what we get in misinformation is nothing to what a lot of countries a lot nearer Russia get. You know, what did we do wrong? We probably didn't act early enough to make it clear that we knew who Putin was and to make it clear that we knew how to respond to him. But, you know, it's not as if at some point in the last eight years we could have admitted Ukraine into NATO or done something like that. It's been occupied in part for at least eight years. You can't really start a defensive alliance against a country that's already in conflict. That's right, yes. And, and, and you know, when we look at, at, at Brexit and Trump and Putin, I'm sure, you know, Putin was absolutely delighted by Brexit and absolutely delighted by Trump. I, I, I think the idea that the major cause of Brexit and Trump was Vladimir Putin is is, is probably misguided. Uh, I'm sure you agree, yeah? Yes, I, I think he was able to put fuel on a fire that was already burning. But, you know, you could argue that the Russian hacks of the DNC and of Hillary Clinton that were then amplified so hugely by WikiLeaks and the media might have just put Trump over the edge, but Mm. ultimately that's only because it was a very close election. You know, millions of people knew what they were voting for when they voted for Brexit. Millions of people knew what they were voting for when they were voting for Trump. And, you know, that that's what we have to face with. We can't just sort of go, a Russian did it and run away. How do these awful events change the, the potential fate of Boris Johnson over the next few weeks, do you think? I think long term, he's still pretty stuffed. He's not Mm. going to get his popularity back. He's not going to get his magic touch. And uh, this isn't going to be the Falklands. You know, there's not, unfortunately, going to be some happy ending to this. 
I don't think there's a clear end game for Putin either. I don't think you can run a um, puppet state in the 21st century. And uh, I'm not sure how he's going to try to do so. You know, the immediate sort of heat has gone out of the story, but, you know, the Met Police are still investigating him. The local elections are still coming. Uh, Half his cabinet are still eyeing up his job. And uh, he's still on about his sort of sixth choice of staff in number 10. So, you know, I'm sure in in a quite tragic way, he's probably quite glad of these awful developments but i don't think they actually spell any good news for him no i think it's postponing isn't it rather than uh, rather than wiping the slate clean um let's let's turn to to problems at home then and to your piece because there you know there is no doubt that bad regimes buying influence is one of the many serious challenges our democracy faces how does how does that fit in with your the ways that you've outlined in, in the New European to, to help repair Westminster and our democracy? So um, I, I think what I was sort of trying to do with this one was, you know, it's easy to do a list of policies that we like or yeah. a list of, you know, stuff that we'd like to spend more on. It's not always quite so easy to go, how do we actually improve government and policy making? And I think... You know, a lot of these that are, are sort of, they're not quite technocratic because I don't think you can just sort of magically go, let's put the experts in charge. You know, that's that's the classic charge of centrist brain. But what, what they are trying to do is look at how you would change the mechanics of government decision-making to make it better. And I think sort of the key two in there really speak to each other. And what is basically move the Prime Minister the hell out of 10 Downing Street, Mm. get a proper central government department, you know, get something like the West Wing of the White House, the OEOB functioning. Because at the moment, government is run by the Treasury. And that's a really terrible way to run a government. Um, It means that the sort of department that's nickel and diming is also the department that's coordinating everyone and uh, trying to do the plans. And that doesn't really work. Number 10 is outgunned by it, by a sort of order of magnitude. And it means that we end up doing things to save pennies here and there that sort of cost us pounds and cost us lives and cost us influence down the road. And whether that's sort of comes to foreign policy, whether it comes to development, whether it comes to infrastructure, you need a counterweight to the Treasury and you need to get it back in its box. And so for machinery of government stuff, There's that. And then a lot of the rest is sort of ideas to try and restore some trust in politics and some trust in MPs, you know, and there's there's sort of obvious ones. We all know that the ministerial code doesn't work and that sort of various other things like that don't work. But we don't tend to think quite as often of, you know, why on earth does each MP get to run their own fiefdom? And you can actually find ways to centralise hiring of staff, disputes, pay, etc. And these sorts of things, they sound petty, but they are what then makes everything else happen and get it going and gets rid of some of the weird anachronisms of the British state that don't really help any of us, I think. Yes, that's right. I mean, some of these will be, you know, will be familiar to people, won't they? You're talking about curbing rules, you know, toughening up rules on shareholdings. And, you know, we've seen Jacob Rees-Mogg is is now shareholder, is a shareholder of, of 
companies who may be directly affected by um, or, or funds that, that governing companies that may be directly affected by the decisions that Jacob Rees-Mogg makes. And then you talk about the, the ministerial code and, and second jobs and stuff like that and jobs that you can get as a result of being a former minister. I mean, one of the, the the talk you talk about the treasury and the balance between the treasury and number ten. One of the ones that struck me was was moving out of number ten Downing Street or moving out of Downing Street completely. Why is that a good idea when we've spent so much on infrastructure like wine fridges? <laughs> well, I mean, I just think it's quite strange to try and run uh, one of the the world's sort of richest nations in the 21st century from a terraced house mm. um, and you know it's it's a completely bizarre building if if you've been in it you've got this sort of grand entrance hall and the cabinet rooms just up the stairs and it all looks very nice and then all the work happens in this sort of crowded sub-basement yes. and you have like this little warren of offices uh, you could also look up and if there's a red band at the top of the wall, you're in the bunker bit. If there isn't, you're uh, you're not protected if a missile hits, uh, which again is a sort of weird anachronism in the basement of a terraced house. But space is so limited there that you see a little office that you think should have one or two people in it, and it's got six people working. You know, it's no wonder they all got COVID. And it sort of sprawls out into number 11 where you've sort of got the treasury and a few people there you've got the chief whip down at number nine and then there's a little back door that takes you through to the cabinet office and none of it makes sense none of it's laid out well none of it's sort of anything like any sane office layout would be um and it's it's just quite unpleasant and it's far too small it can't fit nearly as many workers as a proper prime ministerial department would need you know, you sort of, if you're a cabinet minister, you get so, so, so many people in your department able to get things done. The prime minister ends up with about 60 staff to try and stay across the entire government. And, you know, it's no wonder that they all end up sort of being run by their cabinet rather than actually getting any grip on the country. It's Yeah, it is. And what a mess. And as various listeners and, and readers of The New European have said, when we when we ask for, for, for their suggestions, you know, we turn, we turn all this into a theme park for lovely Americans. And then we could we could move we could move somewhere much more efficient. Do, do they need to move out of the Houses of Parliament as well, do you think? I mean, obviously, well, they're going to have to at some point, aren't they anyway? Well, I, I think uh, I think. What they're going to do is just keep on uh, delaying uh, making a plan for the refit since somehow apparently doing these renovations will take between 28 and 76 years. You know, I think we've built cities in less time than that. But I think they're going to carry on being so paralysed by indecision on what to do with it that it will burn down before they have to uh, make their mind up. Um, so, you know, they may as well accept that they're not going to save it and decant now. I feel like we could probably get a new building in less than 28 years, probably for less money 
and you know maybe even make it uh energy efficient get a few solar panels on the roof and uh help us towards net zero in the process <laughs> maybe the rats will just take over and and they they will they will become you know they'll, they'll be they'll become the rulers of westminster and, and the mps will just be the servants of the of the rats um, i mean I, I i think probably a fair few of our readers will think that the rats took over long ago exactly i would have thought so so many responses to this so little time to discuss them i mean Lots of people saying strip out the bars and the restaurants, canteens only, people saying electronic voting, maximum three terms for all elected politicians, a Westminster office pool comprised of civil servants who are the only people who can be hired to man MPs and ministers' offices. Just a couple I wanted to, to, to take on. Uh, Conrad Rowland says, provide a mechanism for the public to express no confidence in a government before a general election uh, is called. And Jane Harbison says, among many other things, make all donations and freebies illegal. So, and a lot of people said this. So, so how would that work in practice? I think this, this is incredibly doable. Um, Mm. And Look, British elections don't spend very much money. US elections cost billions and billions of dollars. No party is allowed to spend more than about £19 million on a UK election. So by the standards of public funding, they're cheap. And so what I would suggest is you look at the last, you sort of take an average of the last council elections and national elections and go by vote share, not by seats, and disperse funding on that basis. You know, you get maybe a little bit of extra money if you're at the lower percentages and just fund parties by using state money and no one else gets to fund them and base it on uh, popularity. That should work. And then you wouldn't need any donors. You wouldn't need all of these dinners and black and white balls and tennis games with Boris Johnson or... Did some, didn't someone uh, ask for a magic show from Penny Mordaunt? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's by far the easiest way to take money out of politics is for us to agree to sort of dig in our, our collective pockets and pay for it ourselves. And parties seem quite reluctant to put that on the table, but I think voters would go for it. About two quid a year for most of us, and it would take that awful sort of money and influence peddling out of politics. Me too, me too. And and this comes back to something that, that other people asked um, and I wanted to end with. Are you surprised that at this moment Labour are not campaigning on a platform of widespread reform of Westminster, draining of the swamp, to coin a phrase? Why, why are they not doing that? I, I can only assume that they're saving it for later. Hmm. You know, why why put the line out too much and the details out too much and let the Tories get to know them now when, you know, there's, there's still probably at least a year until an election and maybe even two. And so I, I could only assume that they're going to sort of get some policies together and get some things through uh, nearer the time. You know, I think until quite recently, we were still in the middle of the scandal and you don't want to start moving people on from the scandal to reform while it's still landing. And then we've been overtaken somewhat by Ukraine. And so I'd be very surprised if they don't start with something towards the tail end of this year. Um, But they'll also slightly have to work out, you know, getting their own house in order and what, you know, their funders and the unions and their various constituent parties want 
so I think they will, but I think they're probably right not to do so just yet. Yes, well, we'll wait and see. I'm not, not sure that, that it will include Conrad Rowlands' plan to uh, recall the government at any, any stage. Although, <laughs> I would, although at the moment, I would be wholeheartedly in favour of, of that. Um, uh, it's an interesting little proposal, isn't it? Isn't I can't it? quite see how you'd get that one to work, I'm afraid. But no. uh, it's an no. interesting idea. It is. James Ball, thank you so much for joining us. You can read more from James in the current issue of The New European is seven modest proposals to um, effect change in Westminster. To get full access to James's archive, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Before the Hall of Shame, I wanted to remind you about another excellent podcast from The New European, Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly. It tells the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. A superb listen, it's available where you got this podcast. So finally, it's time for a special Hall of Shame where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that get my goat generally. Anne Widdicombe is always in the Hall of Shame, as we know. Here's what she wrote about Ukraine in her terrible Daily Express column this week. To deter Vladimir Putin, we must present a united front and we must mean it when we talk about sanctions, sanctions that will bite hard. Without that united front, Putin will merely laugh at us. A couple of mentions there of a united front. It's interesting, isn't it? What Anne seems to be saying then is that European nations should come together in some sort of union to decide on how we approach this and other problems. What a terrific idea from Anne Whittaker. Boris Johnson is in the Hall of Shame, as usual. He said that Nadine Doris should not be allowed to interfere in Russia today as broadcasting in Britain, because that's what Russia would do. Silly ass. It's OK, obviously, to for Nadine Doris to interfere in the output of the BBC and Channel 4, just not in a Russian tyrant's personal channel, which pumps lies into British homes on a hourly basis. Lawrence Fox is in the Hall of Shame. This is his reaction uh, to events in Ukraine on Twitter. When the world's greatest military swaps deterrence for wokeism and identity politics, the results are going to be predictable. Picking a fight with Russia seems unfathomably stupid. So there we go, the invasion of Ukraine purely down to Vladimir Putin thinking the USA is weak because there are some gays in the military now and Eminem took the knee at the Super Bowl. Talk about unfathomably stupid. But foremost, or for least, in the Hall of Shame this week is Aaron Banks, the multimillionaire UKIP financier. Ukraine isn't a single unified country in the same way that Spain has its Basque problem, as Aaron Banks has written. And he's also written this. Ukraine is to Russia as the Isle of Wight is to Britain. And I say, once again, whatever happened to defending the sovereignty of an independent nation which just wants to take control of its borders, its laws and its money. Wasn't Aaron into that? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to James Ball. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews where you can. Oh, and listen to our new podcast, The 27. It's available in this podcast stream. And don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available where you get your podcasts. If you like what we do at The New European, please subscribe. It's theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social, 
You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.